welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Not unlike Douglas MacArthur, I have returned to discuss five cases. Before I do, I note that the Ninth Circuit decided to go and bonk this week on its panel decision in Tomzik v. Wilkinson, a very unique reinstatement decision discussed on episode 41 of the podcast. Check it out. And check out this week's batch of fun, starting now. Starting off is Guerrero Trejo v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on July 2nd, 2021. This case is about cancellation of removal, and it was technically published late last Friday. While I just couldn't get to it last week, I've now given it justice by letting it tee off the episode. Mr. Guerrero Trejo is from Mexico, entered the United States unlawfully, and lived here for over 10 years before DHS initiated removal proceedings. He therefore applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB, arguing that he's a good person and that his removal will cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen children. He had three young U.S. citizen children with his first wife and another two with his current wife, and he lived with the latter two and supported all of them. Also, his eldest daughter, nine years old, had Attention Deficit Disorder, or ADD. But as so often occurs, the immigration judge held that none of Mr. Guerrero Trejo's five children would suffer the requisite hardship if he was removed, particularly as they'd all remain in the United States with their mothers, who it appears did not have lawful immigration status, by the way, but who were not in removal proceedings themselves. The BIA affirmed, and so did the Fifth Circuit. But before it did, it issued a pretty big holding, particularly in light of the Patel case that will be decided by the Supreme Court next term. 
The Fifth Circuit held that in light of the Supreme Court's 2020 decision in Guerrero-Lasprilla, and although the INA divested of jurisdiction from reviewing the IJ or BIA's discretionary decision to grant or deny non-LPR cancellation of removal, the court, quote, may review the IJ's determination that the events that would befall Mr. Guerrero's children if he were removed would not amount to exceptional and extremely unusual hardship, as Congress intended the phrase, end quote. According to the Fifth Circuit, a question like this, where it is, quote, applying a legal standard to establish facts in order to determine whether a non-citizen is eligible for discretionary relief, is a question of law. It's a mixed question of law and fact treated as a question of law, and it's reviewable, following Guerrero Lasprilla. Put another way, the only thing that INA Section 242A2B prevents a circuit court from reviewing is the, quote, exercise of the adjudicator's discretionary authority to determine who, among the eligible persons, should be granted discretionary relief as a matter of grace, end quote. That's a pretty narrow jurisdiction-stripping provision when stated like that, and it is. According to the Fifth Circuit, even the Supreme Court appears to have endorsed this view in Pereira v. Sessions and Kukana v. Holder. Heck, Pereira was technically a non-LPR cancellation of removal case itself, and the Supreme Court never mentions INA Section 242A2B. Noted. The Fifth Circuit's holding here aligns, to a degree, with portions of Patel on the 11th, actually, and a Sixth Circuit decision post-Guerrero-Lasprilla. But it conflicts with post-Guerrero-Lasprilla holdings from the Third and Tenth Circuits, all discussed on the pod and pretty much all leading to a gong at some point. More to it, it's complicated, and of course it's a bit more nuanced than what I'm about to say, but suffice to say, you can challenge hardship findings in the Fifth Circuit if you argue it right. Guerrero Lasprilla implicitly overruled prior Fifth Circuit precedent. What a world, and what a case. Not only that, but the Fifth Circuit held that it had jurisdiction to review, quote, a purely factual issue, end quote, because, quote, findings of fact are not discretionary judgments, end quote, meaning that they do not fall under the jurisdiction bar. These are all huge rulings on a very complicated issue from an often ideologically conservative court that the Patel team certainly does not hate. So all that's pretty good for non-citizens, and it resulted in the Fifth Circuit reviewing the IJ and BIA's fact-finding and determination that the facts of this case didn't rise to the exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard. But Mr. Guerrero Trejo still didn't succeed even though oil actually didn't put forth substantive argument and only argued jurisdiction. The Fifth Circuit held that the IJ's hardship findings were supported by substantial evidence. Mr. Guerrero Trejo didn't meet his burden to establish that his eldest daughter's ADD was serious enough to constitute the necessary hardship in his absence, nor did he show that the mothers couldn't support the children in the United States, notwithstanding their own lack of immigration status. Plus, Mr. Guerrero Trejo ran into the BIA's decision in Matter of Montreal, arguably the harshest of the early published non-LPR cancellation of removal decisions, wherein relief is reserved only for the, quote, truly exceptional situations, end quote. Mr. Guerrero Trejo's case was not similar to Matter of Racinus, as so many of us try to argue our cases are. So, 
some good law made, but ultimately harsh for Mr. Guerrero Trejo and his children. Very important jurisdiction case, especially in the Fifth Circuit and the circuits that haven't spoken yet, but I believe I've said all there is to be said. And that is Guerrero Trejo v. Garland. Next up is Batista Batista v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on July 6, 2021. This case is about particular social groups. Mr. Batista Batista is from Guatemala and came to the United States in 2010 at 19 years old without authorization. In removal proceedings before the immigration judge, he claimed to fear the quote, vigilante group known as Securidad that operated in his hometown of Todos Santos, end quote, which targeted him after believing him a gang member due to a tattoo that he had. Seguridad members then searched him and, quote, cut off a tattoo from Mr. Batista Batista's back and threatened to cut off a tattooed finger if he did not remove the tattoo himself, end quote. Mr. Batista Batista decided to keep his tattoo and fled to the United States. It appears that the immigration judge denied his asylum application as time-barred and then denied both withholding of removal and Convention Against Torture protection. The BIA eventually affirmed. As did the Eighth Circuit. Now notably, it assumed, as did the immigration judge, that Mr. Batista Batista's first proposed particular social group of, quote, tattooed Guatemalan youths, end quote, is cognizable, but then held that Mr. Batista Batista had outgrown that group because he's no longer a youth. The Eighth Circuit is not clear whether this means, in legalese, that DHS met its burden to establish a fundamental change in circumstances after a past persecution showing, or if alternatively, the IJ never actually made a past persecution finding. But either way, Mr. Batista Batista can't get asylum on this ground. As to the second proposed particular social group of, quote, people who promised to remove their tattoos years ago but did not, end quote, the group is not cognizable because it's, quote, essentially a group of one, end quote. Now again, notably, the Eighth Circuit expressly cited to matter of ARCG to reach this holding. A bit unnecessary, unless the panel or their law clerks are trying to tell us that they know that the matter of ABs are no longer good law. I see you, Eighth Circuit. In any event, the Eighth Circuit affirmed the IJ's holding that Mr. Batista Batista could relocate in Guatemala to avoid any harm that he feared, which additionally also served as a reason to deny cat protection. Mr. Batista Batista, therefore, did not succeed. Short case. And that is Batista Batista v. Garland. Next is Quintanilla v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on July 9th, 2021. This is another gang, tattoo, asylum-type decision. Mr. Quintanilla is from El Salvador and first entered the United States after being smuggled in at 13 years old. He was first removed in 2000, per a final order of removal, after getting involved in MS-13 in California as a teenager and becoming addicted to heroin. 
He re-entered or attempted to re-enter a couple more times to be with his family and was removed each time. Mr. Quintanilla has had a tough life. On his latest attempt to re-enter the United States, DHS reinstated a prior removal order, but due to Mr. Quintanilla's fear of gangs in El Salvador, placed him in withholding-only proceedings. In those proceedings, he testified pro se that MS-13 would and does view him as a traitor for leaving the gang, and that indeed, he was in the process of getting his gang tattoos removed from all those years ago. And it's not just hypothetical. MS-13, for example, almost beat him to death in El Salvador before he fled, and on another occasion, tried to murder him with a gun. But during the scuffle, Mr. Quintanilla stabbed the gang member in the neck and fled. This led to an international hit being ordered against Mr. Quintanilla by MS-13. He also claimed to have been beaten by Salvadoran police in the past for various reasons. Mr. Quintanilla has had a tough life. The immigration judge denied relief and protection for a bunch of reasons, and although there appears to be a fair amount of inconsistent testimony, didn't make a straight adverse credibility finding. Mr. Quintanilla appealed pro se, but then got an attorney for briefing, who naturally made a few more arguments and certainly provided more detail. The BIA affirmed the denial of withholding of removal and Convention Against Torture protection. The Second Circuit affirmed the BIA. First, the Second Circuit held that even if the IJ erred in failing to make an express adverse credibility finding, the BIA cleaned that up by assuming Mr. Quintanilla credible and denying for other reasons. As to those other reasons, the Second Circuit agreed that the two particular social groups were not cognizable. For the first, quote, former gang members who actively distanced themselves from the gangs and worked to oppose them, end quote, the Second Circuit believed the reasoning of matter of WGR persuasive, which analyzed the cognizability of former Salvadoran Mara 18 gang members. The Second Circuit also found persuasive matter of SEG, which discussed and rejected groups based on those who resist gangs. The Second Circuit rejected the second particular social group of, quote, individuals working in El Salvador to rehabilitate youth in order to prevent their joining gangs, end quote, for largely similar reasons. In both cases, and even assuming, for example, that a Christian anti-gang NGO had posted videos of Mr. Quintanilla online getting his tattoos removed in an effort to prevent gang recruitment, the fact doesn't help, because, quote, the participation of a foreign nonprofit organization in the program does not provide such evidence because how a group within a country is viewed by those outside its borders does not demonstrate domestic social distinction. End quote. Addressing cat protection, the Second Circuit agreed that Mr. Quintanilla had failed to present sufficiently persuasive testimony of having been beaten by Salvadoran police. Rather, his testimony and evidence actually conflicted on the issue. Nor did he present sufficient evidence that the police would acquiesce or turn a blind eye to MS-13's torture, particularly considering substantial evidence review. Mr. Quintanilla's sad saga continues. A treatise of a decision denying relief and seemingly leaving no stone unturned that I've done my best to summarize succinctly. Here are some Supreme Court observations. Not for nothing, 
The Second Circuit assumed arguendo that notwithstanding the jurisdiction-stripping provision at INA Section 242A2C due to Mr. Quintanilla's convictions, the Supreme Court's decision in Nasrallah v. Barr, arising in the CAT context, also allowed the Second Circuit to review factual determinations made in the statutory withholding of removal context. I talked about this concept last week in Johnson v. Chavez, and while the Second Circuit didn't mention that case, because again it was only issued a week ago, I believe it supports its arguendo action here, sans arguendo. You heard it here first, many times. Nasrallah's coming for you, and it will eventually allow review of factual findings in the statutory withholding of removal context. Argue it now. This decision is also the first one to mention Garland v. Dye, published by the Supreme Court and discussed on episode 58 of the podcast. Here, the Second Circuit described that case as, quote, holding that statutory presumption of credibility applies only to administrative appeal and not to judicial review, end quote. So we got it right, y'all. Even after Dye, the BIA, as it did here, still needs to presume a non-citizen credible absent an express adverse credibility finding by the IJ, even if the circuit does not. And that is Quintanilla v. Garland. Moving to my circuit of residence, we have Poso Sanchez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on July 7, 2021. This is just a wild one. Mr. Pozo Sanchez is from Mexico, but entered the U.S. unlawfully by land at the age of 17 in 1980. He lived in the U.S. for a decade thereafter, meaning he was present in the U.S. during and apparently eligible for President Reagan and the Republican Party's amnesty program. And he applied. But even the circuit court here can't review that application because the program made such applications confidential. What a bipartisan humanitarian program that was. Mr. Pozo Sanchez even obtained a temporary resident card, the first step to amnesty, in 1990. Shortly thereafter, he traveled from his home in Riverside to San Diego, and in San Clemente, he was stopped by Border Patrol, the same type of officer who mans ports of entry. The Border Patrol officer questioned Mr. Pozo Sanchez about his status, and Mr. Pozo Sanchez presented his temporary resident card to the officer, who let him go. But then in 1993, former INS denied Mr. Poso Sanchez's temporary resident status. Unsure how that happened, but maybe it's because the first card only lasted three years, he applied again, and former INS denied. And maybe, again, just speculating, INS denied in 93 because during that 1990 San Clemente incident, Mr. Poso Sanchez was driving with individuals who did not have authorization to be in the United States, unlike him. Again, speculating. Having had his temporary resident status terminated and lacking authorization, Mr. Poso Sanchez remained in the U.S. until 2010 or 2011, until ICE removed him to Mexico for reasons unexplained. A lot of unknowns in this one. Mr. Poso Sanchez tried to come back to the U.S. to be with his family in March 2011 in the trunk of a car. He was caught by DHS at the San Ysidro Port of Entry, and DHS, graciously to be honest, let him in to appear before an IJ for removal proceedings. 
The NTA charged him as removable as a non-citizen present in the United States without being admitted or paroled. The NTA lacked the date and time of his first removal hearing. During proceedings, Mr. Poso Sanchez applied for a bunch of relief, adjustment to LPR status, non-LPR cancellation of removal, and in the alternative, post-conclusion voluntary departure under INA Section 240B-B. Now, assuming he was even eligible because he had a qualifying visa petition, he'd still need to be inspected and admitted into the U.S. to obtain LPR status. Mr. Poso Sanchez argued that he was inspected and admitted, either when he received the temporary resident status in 1990, or, alternatively, during that San Clemente incident shortly afterwards. The immigration judge rejected both arguments. The IJ also denied non-LPR cancellation of removal because apparently Mr. Poso Sanchez lacks a qualifying relative, and denied post-conclusion voluntary departure, finding that Mr. Poso Sanchez had not been present in the U.S. for at least one year before applying, as the voluntary departure statute requires. The BIA affirmed. The Ninth Circuit split the baby. It affirmed the agency on the admission issue, relying in part on the Supreme Court's recent decision in Sanchez v. Mayorkas to hold that although immigration officials, quote, have detained and inspected Mr. Poso Sanchez multiple times at U.S. ports of entry, he concedes that they have never granted him permission to enter the United States, end quote. I think he's just been turned around a lot, even though he's been inspected. Admission, on the other hand, requires the permission to enter the United States, according to the Ninth Circuit. Addressing the San Clemente incident in particular, that incident occurred in the United States, and so it can't count as an inspection and admission for adjustment of status purposes. But I appreciate the argument. Now true, the Ninth Circuit assumed in U.S. v. Hernandez-Arias in 2014 that temporary resident status under the amnesty program qualifies as an admission in certain circumstances. And Hernandez-Arias also held that the government's termination of that status, as occurred here in 93, quote, unwound, end quote, the admission, so to speak. Love this stuff. But according to the Ninth Circuit, that's not actually what's at issue here. According to the court, if that San Clemente incident counted as an admission, it would remain an admission, even under Hernandez-Arias because any unwinding following termination of temporary resident status wouldn't affect a subsequent separate admission, even when that separate admission was based on one holding temporary resident status. But as I just explained, the San Clemente thing is not an admission, so it doesn't matter. Wow. Mr. Poso Sanchez is therefore removable and ineligible for adjustment of status and he's ineligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal for other reasons as well. But what about voluntary departure? Well, the Ninth Circuit used the rationale from Niz Chavez and Pereira to hold that a non-compliant NTA does not stop the clock for physical presence required of post-conclusion voluntary departure, because that statute, like the non-LPR cancellation statute, is tethered to service of an NTA under INA Section 239A. And just like with the non-LPR cancellation of removal statute, a subsequent notice of hearing won't stop the physical presence clock. Win one for the statutory text. 
If you recall, Mr. Poso Sanchez's NTA lacked the necessary information, and the removal proceedings took five years. So we had five years physical presence, well more than the one year required of post-conclusion voluntary departure. So the Ninth Circuit sent it back. Congratulations in part to Michael J. Self for petitioner. Two more noteworthy notes. I believe the charge of removability here is not sustainable for another reason. Mr. Poso Sanchez was not removable for being Iwi. Instead, if anything, he was removable under INA Section 212A7AII for lacking valid documents at the time he applied for admission. What I miss? Anyway, as I counted, this is the first circuit decision extending Nis Chavez and Pereira beyond non-LPR cancellation of removal and to another form of relief here post-conclusion voluntary departure. Probably won't affect an immense amount of non-citizens because you only need one year of physical presence to get post-conclusion voluntary departure. But consider the floodgates potentially opened. And that is Bolso Sanchez v. Garland. Finally, we have Escobar Santos v. Garland published by the Ninth Circuit on July 9, 2021. This decision is about aggravated felonies. Judge Whaley, a district court judge sitting by designation, dissented. Mr. Escobar Santos is from Guatemala, entered the United States without authorization, and has been in this country for many years. He was discovered and charged as removable in 2012 for being in the U.S. without authorization. He applied for asylum and related relief, and in the alternative, post-conclusion voluntary departure. In 2015, with proceedings ongoing, he was convicted of forgery in violation of California Penal Code Section 470A, and he was sentenced to three years incarceration with only 364 days to be actually served in custody. As pertinent to this decision, the IJ denied asylum and voluntary departure based on a finding that the conviction is an aggravated felony, as defined at INA Section 101A43R, as the IJ must, if the IJ so determines. The BIA affirmed. INA Section 101A43R defines as an aggravated felony, quote, an offense relating to forgery for which the term of imprisonment is at least one year, end quote. Even though the statute employs the phrase relating to, the analysis is governed by podcast favorite, the categorical approach, requiring a comparison of the elements of the state crime with the elements of the federal removal offense. So what are the elements of the federal removal offense? Well, the Ninth Circuit has previously held that they incorporate common law forgery, which requires, quote, one, a false making of some instrument in writing, two, a fraudulent intent, and three, an instrument apparently capable of affecting fraud, end quote. The California crime here, in turn, criminalizes, quote, every person who alters, falsifies, forges, duplicates, or in any manner reproduces or counterfeits any driver's license or identification card issued by a governmental agency with the intent that such driver's license or identification card be used to facilitate the commission of any forgery, end quote. The Ninth Circuit majority held that the California crime categorically matches the aggravated felony definition. First, even though it allows for a conviction for mere photocopying a driver's license, 
the defendant still must do so with the intent to, quote, facilitate the commission of any forgery, end quote, which satisfies the aggravated felony definition. The majority distinguished this case from the Ninth Circuit's 2008 decision in Viscara Ayala v. Mukasey, where the Ninth held that the bad check crime at Cal Penal Code Section 245C was not a categorical aggravated felony forgery offense because it allowed for conviction where the defendant merely possessed or used, quote, genuine instruments with the intent to defraud but not to forge, end quote. Unlike that statute, the majority held that the crime here, Cal Penal Code Section 470A, does not permit conviction for mere possession. Nor are there any California state cases where defendants are prosecuted for possessing or using genuine documents, as was relied upon in Vescara Ayala. Or put another way, quote, by definition, Section 470A requires proof of a false writing capable of procuring fraud, end quote. That's always forgery, according to the court. It wasn't the case with the statute in Vescara Ayala, but it is the case here. So Mr. Escobar Santos's case is different. His statute is an aggravated felony, and he's barred from asylum and post-conclusion voluntary departure. Here's a bit more, and from dissent. So no one talked about it, but implicitly, the Ninth Circuit is holding here that being sentenced to three years incarceration with only 364 days to be actually served in custody qualifies as a, quote, term of imprisonment of at least one year end quote, as the aggravated felony at issue requires. Perhaps so, or perhaps no one argued the issue, but I'd be curious to the rationale. Moving to dissent, Judge Whaley quotes the Supreme Court, stating that, quote, where the falsity lies in the representation of facts, not in the genuineness of execution, it is not forgery, end quote. And actually, it seems that the majority would agree, so remember that but the judges just seem to disagree as to what Cal Penal Code Section 470A allows. Judge Whaley believes it allows for mere duplication of an ID card and believes that California has actually prosecuted someone for merely possessing a genuine ID of someone else, which everyone agrees wouldn't be forgery. The majority read that California case relied upon by Judge Whaley differently. And so, as so often occurs with these types of cases, sometimes it comes down to whether counsel can find a state court prosecution for non-generic conduct. If counsel can, your client may win the day. I hope that one day the criminal defense and immigration bars create a repository of such prosecutions for use in the categorical approach. And that is Escobar Santos v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, 
or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.